Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 115, The Rotten Apple. Last time, the war with France had resumed, but what a different war to the glorious 40s and 50s. England had to learn a new kind of war, they had to learn how to defend a kingdom peopled with unreliable and unwilling subjects and with a new generation of military leaders to fight. England was fighting adversaries in Charles V and Gascoigne, who had learnt from the failures of the past and had a clear, if sometimes painful, strategy. Stay inside the towns when an English army appears, attack key points in force before the English can respond, and talk the nobility into deserting en masse. The disappointments of 1370 were a shock for many reasons for the English. There was obviously the horrid realisation that the world had changed, and that the English needed to do more than shove a few archers over the channel and watch everything salt itself out. But there was also the question of money. Essentially, Edward had financed the expeditions of 1370 out of his accumulated war chest. And that war chest was now done. So Parliament needed to be made to stump up. The Chancellor, William Wickham and the King, did not enjoy the Parliament of February 1371. Because the Commons just couldn't get it. Now look, they knew that in Edward they had a king who could not be defeated at war. He was the modern Maccabee, the undefeated war leader. That was a fact, no arguing with that. But on the other hand, apparently we'd been given a kicking in the north and lost vast swathes of territory in the southwest. So, um, basically... And to cap that basic conundrum, they were being asked for money. Ha! It was years since Parliament had been asked to do more than vote the export wool subsidies. And the idea of a tax horrified them so much that they called it an oppressive ransom. Really, they were not a collectively happy bunny. 
So the conclusion the Commons came to was that something must be wrong, this couldn't be right, Edward couldn't be losing, and he couldn't be having money problems, so it had to be something else, it had to be incompetence and corruption. The men responsible must be fired, and then everything would be okay, and we'd go back to winning and things being cheap again. So while the war in 1371 would go every bit as badly as it had in 1370, this wasn't the biggest disaster of the year. Nope, the biggest disaster was that in their search for easy scapegoats, the Commons hit on the very men who had the talent and organisational competence to help fight this new war, and instead they put in their place corrupt and venal losers. And they did this on the slightly feeble grounds that the old lot were all churchmen and therefore couldn't be good at running a wartime administration. Now, try telling that to Odo Bayer in 1066, and he'd give you a good thump. So out went the Chancellor Wickham, the Treasure Brantingham, and the Keeper of the Privy Seal. In their place came a group of sort of pantomime villains. If they'd had waxed moustaches, they would have been twiddling them furiously while dramatically rolling their eyes. The main adviser of Edward in these appointments seems to have been one Alice Perez. We last met Alice in 1364, and it's clear that she really is a piece of work. But before we start ranting about Alice and her crimes, we should also think a bit about her situation and motivations. When Edward's eye and other parts of his anatomy picked her out in 1364, she was pretty much destitute and powerless, her father in prison. It's not surprising, therefore, she should have been on the lookout for a spot of security. Bear in mind that the way this normally went was that you had a royal bastard and effectively got kicked out. You just hoped that the bastard was recognised before the kicking happened. You have to have a bit of sympathy for the lass. She was probably born in 1349. Also, you have to have a bit of sympathy for the lass. She was probably born in 1349. Edward was born in 1312 and is therefore 37 years her senior. Now I'm all in favour of love across the generations and all that and wear my liberal live-and-let-live credentials with pride but a 15-year-old may not have found a 52-year-old Edward physically attractive. Especially since we know Edward had been on the pies recently so that he'd needed to have his clothes extended. And finally, we know that the main chronicler of Alice and all her works was a grumpy cleric caught in a land dispute with the Perrers family. So just bear all that in mind as we begin to slate Alice and all her activities. Still, having done the nicey-nicey bit, the people that Alice persuaded Edward would be the right men for the job were a pretty nasty bunch. Nicholas Carew became the first lay keeper of the Privy Seal. His main accomplishments were to be A. Holding on to the job B. Feathering his own nest and C. Being a non-entity. Richard Scroop became the treasurer, and he was an interesting case. He was clearly something of a financial numpty, which is traditionally a drawback for the role of treasurer, as the St Andrews University Industrial Society found out to its cost in the 1980s. And he engaged in a number of very dodgy goings-on. The main game was to borrow money from the Crown at no interest, and then lend it back to the government to help the war effort at fat rates of interest, and then give the original money back to the Crown pocketing all that profit. Which is nice work if you can get it, or indeed understand it. 
But actually, Scroop probably falls into the fool rather than the knave category. It was probably the following bloke who duped him into it. And Scroop was later to redeem his good name, as our story will relate. Nope, the bloke that fits the knave category is William Latimer. Boo, and indeed hiss. William's father of the same name had helped Edward in his days of subjection to Roger Mortimer, and so no doubt brought back happy memories. Latimer Jr. had had a military career, which was just what everyone wanted. None of these namby-pamby, milk-livered, robe-wearing, book-reading, turn-the-other-cheek men of God. He also had a bag of cash, which mainly came from his beloved Patty, the extortion of money from the poor inhabitants of Brittany. And this was a man who really did know his finance, and is probably the bloke who ran this whole credit ring operation. Along with John Neville as the steward, Edward created a clique that drew closely around him and began to cut him off from his natural constituency, from his magnates and councillors. Latimer and Perez now began to control access to the king. As for Edward, he's not completely lost control of his faculties, but there's no doubt he's on the way to losing them. He began to mislay a few marbles. It's a difficult topic, this one. No one is quite sure exactly how far gone Edward is by what stage, or even if he is physically or mentally ill. There's almost no doubt that he has a stroke before he dies, and the general consensus is that Edward from 1371 gradually collapses into senility. But equally, who knows? He could just be copping out. It could just be that Edward is mentally overwhelmed by everything he has to cope with and just checks out. After all, he's buried five children. His great pride and joy, the Black Prince, is on the way out and completely incapacitated. Everything he's gained is turning to dust in his hands and frankly, he doesn't have the energy or desire anymore to go and win it back. Because from now on, with the odd exception, Edward is increasingly distant from political decisions. He allows himself to be cut off by Alice and her coven. He makes it quite clear that Alice can act on his behalf and the same applies to Latimer. As an example, the Earl of Pembroke is one of the new commanders of Edward's armies. In autumn 1371, he comes to speak with the king and is told he must see Latimer instead. Alice comes to almost completely control access to the king, which is remarkable for a woman in that day and age. As evidence, the Abbey of St Albans was trying to take this legal action against her. But their legal counsel came to them and said, look, just stop, because Alice, she's got way too much influence and control and you'll just be wasting your time. This is not the Edward we've grown to know and love over the last 30 years. And so we've collectively decided that he must have been ill. Because given his talents and achievements, no one can quite believe he would behave in this way while in full control of his faculties. But I'm not quite so sure. It's at least possible that Edward was simply unable to respond in the way that his grandfather Edward I, love him or loathe him, would have undoubtedly done. And the problem is that Edward does quite clearly make decisions at least up to and including 1374. There is equally no doubt, though, that by the end of his life, Edward is mentally a shadow of his former self. Anyway, Edward got his tax in 1371, and 1371 was a year when the French failed to convert their early successes, and maybe, just maybe, there was hope. 
Certainly, there were great plans for the following year. Meanwhile, Edward's second eldest son, John of Gaunt, seems to be having, seemed to be having trouble focusing on England's problems. And this was very largely because in 1371 he married Constanza, heir to the Castilian throne, through the murdered Pedro the Cruel. Now, I have to declare a conflict of interest here, because I don't really get the John of Gaunt thing. As far as I can see, the only thing of merit about Gaunt was his rather cool name, and yet all the books I've read are very kind to him, giving all kinds of excuses for his manifest and manifold failures. He was massively unpopular at the time with the great British public, and I have to say that I'm with them. I mean, we'll see, but in my humble opinion, this was a guy who happens to have had a certain amount of personal autoritas because of who he was, and because in the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king. But as far as I can see, he's hard to put up more than a C-. minus. Anyway, Gaunt wanted to be a king. In Constanza, by right of his wife, he now had a chance to be king. And for the next 18 years, English policy and priorities would be continually pulled to Castile by John's selfish pursuit of his own personal gain. That view runs that the French-backed Castilian claimant to the throne, Trastamara, had now become King of Castile. So there's an argument to say that getting him removed would help the English cause, and indeed the Castilian navy is about to make a major contribution to the French war effort. But to my mind, it was more of a personal distraction to Gaunt to go after the Castilian throne than it was a strategic decision on behalf of the English. While we're on the subject of mistresses and things, if we were on the subject of mistresses and things, by this time it's very likely that Gaunt was in possession of a mistress called Catherine Swinford, wife of Sir Hugh Swinford. Just to go back a step, you'll remember that Gaunt had married somebody called Blanche. Blanche was the daughter of the universal hero, Henry of Gromont, Duke of Lancaster, when she was just 14. In the next nine years until her death at the age of 23, poor Blanche had seven children, three of whom survived infancy. One of those was a lad called Henry, destined for great things. Blanche herself was the object of The Book of the Duchess, written by a chap called Geoffrey Chaucer, tormentor of schoolboys. Anyway, poor Blanche croaked in 1368, and Catherine Swinford became governess to Gaunt's children. In 1371, when Hugh Swinford died, Catherine openly became Gaunt's mistress. The debate about whether she had already been his mistress while Hugh was alive is a continuing one, and unlikely to come to a final conclusion. Anyway, Catherine's existence was unlikely to have been Constanza's favourite topic of supper conversation, and would cause problems later in her relationship with Gaunt. I mention all this because Catherine and Gaunt's offspring, the Beauforts, will be significant. Give it a hundred years or so. Anyway, so 1371 could have been worse for the English, and in 1372, Edward, the great war leader, was supposed to return, leading an army in person to Calais, to restore England's fortunes like the days of yore. But while that was being prepared, war had come to Brittany. John Montford's long struggle against Blois and his use of the English to sustain his claim had won him many enemies at the French court. 
Through 71 and 72, his position deteriorated, until by 1373, his position, despite English support, was desperate, and he fled to England, leaving only a few fortresses left in the hands of his allies in the west of Brittany. In France, Gascoigne spent the early part of 1371 on the marches of the province most loyal to England, Poitou. The defence of Poitou was in the hands of one of England's most loyal and long-lasting supporters, the good old Captal de Bouche. In Poitou, none of the nobles were prepared to defect to the French cause in the way that they had in the east. And despite Gascoigne's lightning-quick raids and the Captal's complete lack of money and men, initially the defence held firm. And partly that was because people were waiting for the Earl of Pembroke and they knew he was on his way from England with a fleet of men and a war chest and was due to land at La Rochelle. What happened next was a result of overconfidence and bad planning. Pembroke's fleet had almost no protection from warships. The Castilian and French navy was a professional fleet, searching for Pembroke and predicting he would aim for La Rochelle. Julie, Pembroke appeared, and seeing the superior Castilian fleet, did what any sensible leader would do when heavily outnumbered. He attacked. Now, maybe back in the glory days they'd have won nonetheless, but not this time. After 24 hours of fighting, the smaller English ships were set on fire, and the horses below, mad with fear, smashed much of the planking. Pembroke was taken prisoner and taken to Castile. Down in Spain, they were having none of this chivalry rubbish. Pembroke was locked away and died in captivity six months later. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. La Rochelle set the sea on it. Yep, it's official. The English had gone from hero to zero. 
One by one, the towns and castles of Poitou fell to Gescelin and the French. The English had no resources, money or men to fight back. There were no grand encounters with big armies. It was castle by castle stuff. When the English did scrape up enough men to launch a raid, the French just bypassed them or waited until they were gone. I thought it might be good to take one example of how suddenly the English and their Gascon allies could win nothing. So let's take the Battle of Soubise. Soubise is a town north of the Gironde and the Saintonge, which basically means the French were getting close by this stage to the epicentre of English power in Gascony. Here, a small attack had been launched by the French, and the Captal decided he would close down this offensive before it became serious. And so, in August 1372, he launched a daring night attack. They achieved complete surprise against the first section of the French army, which was destroyed and put to flight. But the other sections had been fully alerted by the noise, and when the Captal arrived, they were prepared. In the darkness, the Anglo-Gascons got lost, were trapped in a dead-end alley in the village and forced to surrender. The Captal included, surrendering to a knight called Morley. Alas, Gascony, the Captal is supposed to have said, now you are truly lost. What are you saying, replied Morley. Gascony has won. The Captal, who had played such a part at Poitiers, spent the remaining three years of his life in prison in Paris too dangerous in Charles's mind to be ransomed. Soubise involved probably only 600 men on each side, and so it was a tiny encounter, but it was decisive. Poitou and the Saint-Ange, though not yet Gascony, were lost. On the 30th of August, Edward went on board ship with the army that was to save the war. After six weeks of fighting the wind, he gave up and returned home. Yet another example of how the weather has affected our history. Nonetheless, Parliament gathered itself for another effort the following year, 1373. They clearly recognised that the inadequacy of the English fleet was a major problem and therefore we see the introduction of a new tax called tonnage and poundage. This new tax, which will pop up from time to time in the future, to join our tax lexicon of subsidy, tenths, fifteenths, custom duties and so on, was taxation to be paid by merchantmen based on the size of their ships and cargoes. The money was then to be used to provide ships for defence of their convoys. But this year's major offensive was to be by John of Gaunt, due to take an army to Brittany and launch a chevalse deep into the heart of France, just like the old days. Unfortunately, by that time, most of Brittany had already fallen to the French. So the plan was changed, and Gaunt landed in Calais in July 1373 with about 6,000 men-at-arms and 3,000 archers. In traditional style, they burned and pillaged their way eastwards across France towards Rheims. The French implemented their new tactic, make life difficult, but avoid a pitched battle at all costs. They were constantly in contact with the English army, but withdrew before them. They harassed them relentlessly. For example, Gescalin formed units of a few hundred mounted men, to pick off foraging parties and make it as difficult as possible for Gaunt to gather supplies for his army. Outside Troyes, the two armies came very close and Gaunt tried to provoke a pitched battle. But Charles V had made it clear. No pitched battles. 
There were angry complaints within France at the devastation being visited on the country, but Charles and Gascoigne were made of stronger stuff than had been Philip and John. Despite the pain, they held the line. At this point, Gaunt, for some reason, headed for Gascony, rather than Paris or Brittany or back to Calais. You have to wonder why and what he was trying to achieve. And the most obvious answer was that he wanted to get an army down to Gascony that he could then use to invade Castile and enforce his claim to the Castilian throne. But by now it was winter. His army had arrived at the high Limousin Plateau and it was cold and it was wet. His army were desperately short of supplies. Day after day the English army trudged along their interminable route. Desperately short of supplies, any stragglers were mercilessly picked off by the French. As time went by, everything that wasn't absolutely essential got thrown away. Men-at-arms threw away their armour. One by one, the carts holding loot and treasure were abandoned. And around them, a staggering 15,000 horses died, leaving many on foot. So the army that finally entered Bordeaux was a mess and no use to anyone was cold and wet and desperately hungry. Hundreds of men had died of exhaustion, disease and at the hands of the enemy. And then to make it all worse, when they arrived in Bordeaux, they found that the local harvest had failed and there was no way to feed the remains of Gaunt's army. With no money or supplies, famous knights with broad acres in England were found begging for food on the streets of Bordeaux. It took a while for Edward back in England to realise what an unmitigated disaster all of this was. Gaunt himself, although realising that his men were deserting in droves, assumed that Westminster would send money and blindly went and put together a rather nice-looking alliance with the Count of Foix, Charles of Navarre and the King of Aragon. But at some point after that, the reality of his situation came home to him. And by March 1374, he accepted that his position was absolutely hopeless there was no way he could live up to his obligations under this new treaty and he fled Bordeaux for England to avoid his embarrassment. When they got the news, at first none of his powerful allies could believe it, but in the end they were forced to put Gaunt down as a blithering idiot and the English reputation would never really recover. Furthermore, the English came very close to being thrown out of Gascony completely. The crisis came in July 1374 when the Castilians and French attacked Bayonne, burned the suburbs, but couldn't quite take the town. But despite that, at the end of 1374, the prospect for English rule in Gascony must have looked very bleak indeed. In fact, it was not to be. At the town of Bruges, negotiations had been going on for some time, and in July 1375, a year-long truce was agreed. It ended rather badly for the English, on the very day of the truce, an English-held castle had surrendered, while a French-held one managed to hold out for a few more vital hours and therefore survive. But, given the way things were going, a truce was definitely to English benefit. But it was a limited time period. The war was going to start again in 1376, and when it did, everyone knew where the clever money was. Back at home, there's no doubt that Edward had gone increasingly do lally Alice was exploiting her position like fury. She bought manners at a knockdown price. She exchanged cash for questions in the finest tradition of the modern lobbyist by accepting precious gifts from courtiers for access to the king, who actually was in no fit state 
to make proper decisions anyway. But Edward didn't give two hoots. He trusted Alice. He wanted her near him, and that's all there was to it. Around her, intrigue, jealousy and hatred boiled like a cauldron of pitch. The extent of Alice's influence was undeniably absolute. For example, here's the charming little story of William Windsor. William Windsor had been made the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He had made a complete hash of it, so much so that the Anglo-Irish were begging Edward to get rid of him, which in 1373 he did, recalling him to London to answer charges. Now at this point, Alice and William met. Who knows exactly what went on, but what we do know is that at some point in secret they got married. And we know that despite increasingly vituperative letters from Ireland, telling Edward that Windsor must on no account see the shores of Ireland again. Bless me if Edward didn't go and reappoint Windsor as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And then, in 1375, no one could ignore the scandal any longer. The King had ordered a tournament at Smithfield in London, and it was the real deal. Finely dressed ladies pulling along knights, held in silver chains, all that sort of thing. And at the position of honour as Lady of the Sun, there she was, Alice Perez, riding as bold as brass from the tower to Smithfield. The image I'm left with is of the hairy legs of clerics as they lifted the skirts of their robes to sprint as fast as possible for their monstrous scriptorum, desperate to pour out their bile onto the pages of their chronicles. And to give those hairy-legged clerics their due, this really is nuclear stuff, worm-tongue and theoden time. Unbeknownst to him, Edward was committing adultery, because Alice was now married to William Windsor. Now, noble and royal blokes those days were pretty much entitled to make merry with as many mistresses as they liked, but there were rules. It had to be discreet. Gaunt would get into massive trouble for basically running a parallel household with Catherine Swinford, with four kids and all, while he was married to Constanza. It was deemed humiliating to Constanza. A bit of slap and tickle with the maid was one thing, and okay, it was good form to look after any of the little bastards, but don't rub your high-born wife's nose in it. And adultery, well, that was quite another matter. That was against the laws of God. No, if the William of Windsor thing came out, it would be serious trouble for everyone concerned. So you have to wonder why Alice did it. After all, nestwise, she was feathering away as though there were no tomorrow. So maybe it was just greed and stupidity, but I doubt it. Again, look at it from Alice's point of view. When Edward croaks, she and her son John of Southeray are toast. Yesterday's news, out on the streets. Everyone hates her now, so no one's going to be fighting her corner. So you can see the conversation. William of Windsor has arrived home at Westminster, recalled in disgrace and expecting to see the king. All the way over from Ireland. The only sound William's entourage has heard is the clacking of knitting needles as William desperately knits as many arse covers as he can in advance of the meeting with the king. So there he is, arse covers in hand, and instead, he's ushered in to see the beautiful 24-year-old Alice, who gently admires his knitting skills, and tells him that his needlework has always made her weak at the knees, and how's about if he married her secretly, 
she'd make sure he didn't need his arse covers. They'd instead use them to keep themselves warm at night. And she'd get him reappointed to Ireland to boot. Well, I don't know what the truth is, but the central point about Alice is that she takes the prisoners. She's very young to be in this situation, and she fights her corner all the way through. The traditional story is that she's a slave to her passions, greedy and acquisitive, a cold-eyed, deceptive, scheming harpy who bewitches a noble king and turns him into a blithering idiot, accepts his generosity while stabbing him in the back, and not only that, but breaks the king's heart to boot. I have no intention whatsoever of turning Alice into a feminist icon, because the one constant about her is that she without doubt feathers her nest and without doubt looks out for number one without regard for morality. But there is more than one way of looking at it. Just to reinforce the lack of morality thing, bold as brass, Alice sets up a nice little scheme with the Chamberlain William Latimer and a rich merchant and financier called Richard Lyons. Lyons was an outsider. He was probably a Fleming and probably a bastard and therefore, despite his financial success, never accepted by London society. He'd been a fortune as a vintner, a commodities trader, but mainly as a financier, especially to the Crown. So the scheme they got into was to lend the Crown money, charge a hefty rate of interest and pocket the difference. So they lent 20,000 marks, and the Crown paid £20,000. Added to that, the Crown never actually received the 20,000 marks, because a large part of it was offset against some ancient royal debt the happy trio had bought up. The rate of interest ended up at something like 50%, sweet as a nut. While the rest of England fumed and looked with horror at Alice's brazen exploitation of the king, for Edward his world had shrunk to his lovely Alice always by his side and his trusty officers of state, who took away all that bother and bad news leaving him free to hunt and enjoy Alice's company. War and the resulting royal need for money. The graveyard of royal tyranny in England. Edward III had discovered it, Charles I would discover it. And the coven around Edward III was about to find out about it now. Because the undoing of the little group was that the Bruges truce had only produced a one-year truce, and money was now needed to raise an army, or the way things were going, all English power on the continent was about to be rubbed out. Next week we'll talk about what became known as the Good Parliament and meet one of the bravest and least rewarded of English heroes, Peter de la Mer, the first Speaker of the English Parliament. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening and to all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and on Facebook. Good luck everyone and have a great week.